Welcome back to Fundamentally Mormon. I'm your host, Mark Lichtenwalter, and this is part of the Zion's Redemption Radio Network. Today we're going to be reading The Ancient Practice of Plural Marriage, Chapter 7 of Jesus Was Married, pages 52 through 78. This chapter is actually pretty long. The reader program is about an hour long, so I'm going to play the reader program, and then if I have anything to say, I will just pause it and say it during the reader program portion of this show. And we'll try to keep it under two hours, but we'll see what happens. Um, I've turned on the text citation in the reader program so that you know what is being quoted when and where. Um, If there's any problems with the reader program not being able to understand what the text citation is, I will pause it for that and read the text citation if I hear it mess up. But there's really... No way that I can break this particular chapter up. Sometimes I break them up into parts. But as I've been reading through this chapter, uh, preparing for this, I'm just not seeing any way to really break it up. So, and since I try to keep these programs under two hours long, I've decided that we're just going to put it on the reader program and I will pause it when I have something to say about something. So anyway, uh, thank you everyone for listening to the program. As always, I will post this in my groups on Facebook. If you're following me on Facebook, uh, or if you're not following me on Facebook, you can always find me at facebook.com forward slash L-A-Z-U-R-U-S 1977. And a couple of my groups are LDS Last Days Prophecy and Gospel Discussions. And actually one of my pages, or a couple of my pages, is Zion's Redemption Bookstore and Zion's Redemption Radio Network. Uh, You can follow me there as I post these programs in that place when I am finished with them. So anyway, without any further ado, let's get into the ancient practice of plural marriage. Chapter 7 of Jesus Was Married, pages 52 through 78. The ancient practice of plural marriage. Chapter 7 of Jesus Was Married, pages 52 to 78. Jesus defended and honored his lineage through the grand patriarch Abraham. Is it possible that Jesus would sustain the life of that great prophet, but not the laws and principles that made him great? Throughout the ministry of Jesus and his disciples there is not one word of denunciation against the principle of marriage or plural marriage. Certainly they were aware of such scriptures in the Old Testament as, if you take him another wife, her food, her raiment, and her duty of marriage, shall he not diminish? Exodus 21.10, yet he made no change in these instructions. Rather he advocated men to do the works of Abraham, to be worthy of being Abraham's seed. The Catholic and Protestant ministers of today deny the marriage of Jesus and the law of plural marriage. However, in reading the Gospels, there looms the frequent mention of Jesus' association with many women. 
With all of these women surrounding Jesus, it appears that he was more of a Mormon than Catholic or Protestant. It is not presumptuous to assume that Jesus had lived plural marriage, it had always been a law among the prophets of Israel. Jesus was to obey those laws, not to destroy them, but to show mankind how to live a fullness of all of the laws of God and the Gospel. His answer to Satan when tempted was, to live by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And the prophet Joseph Smith could only declare the same to this dispensation. 53 Thus we have no new commandment to give, but admonish elders and members to live by every word that proceedeth forth from the mouth of God, lest they come short of the glory that is reserved for the faithful. TPJS P. 306. The prophet recognized that Jesus was also confined to obey all of the commandments and ordinances which had ever been given to man. If a man gets the fullness of the priesthood of God, he is to get it in the same way that Jesus Christ obtained it, and that was keeping all the commandments and obeying all the ordinances of the house of the Lord. TPJS P. 308. Several examples of this implication are recorded in the New Testament. And if we can accept this doctrine under the Christian dispensation, then many incidents in the life of Christ will become clearly evident. Setters and Pride The evangelists do not particularly speak of the marriage of Jesus. But this is not to be wondered at, for Street, John says, there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written everyone, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. John 21:25. One thing is certain, that there were several holy women that greatly loved Jesus, such as Mary, and Martha her sister, and Mary Magdalene. And Jesus greatly loved them, and associated with them much. And when he arose from the dead, instead of first showing himself to his chosen witnesses, the apostles, he appeared first to these women, or at least to one of them, namely, Mary Magdalene. Now, it would be very natural for a husband in the resurrection to appear first to his own dear wives, and afterwards show himself to his other friends. If all the acts of Jesus were 54 written, we no doubt should learn that these beloved women were his wives. Ursin Pratt, the seer, p. 159. Among the dearest friends of Jesus were Lazarus and his two sisters, Martha and Mary. How often Jesus must have visited the home of this happy family. And these casual, perhaps often visits, gave him comfort and solace from the frenzy and turmoil of his daily labors. No doubt these associations with Mary and Martha grew more friendly and devoted, because affections and true love will naturally increase. For love begets love. John the disciple, who knew of these circumstances, wrote, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, Mary, and Lazarus. What kind of love was he speaking of? Was not this a different kind of love from that which he generally manifest? Or else why would John mention it? If Mary and Martha were wives, and Lazarus a brother-in-law, then Jesus did love them with a deeper and more intimate love which was so noticeable to John. 
Now Martha, in her character, was a woman with a particular attention and devotion to her home. In the work of housekeeping and family duties she found much pleasure and satisfaction. As a faithful devoted wife, she exercised her special gift in keeping an orderly and efficient home. Mary, however, was blessed with other types of gifts. She was a contemplative woman and given to spiritual feelings and religious instruction. These two sisters, devoted as they were to their talents, and to Jesus, were sooner or later, by their nature, destined to clash. On one occasion, while Jesus was with them, as the meal was being prepared by Martha, she felt that Mary was neglecting her share of the household duties, thereby leaving these chores to her. Martha could not see the value of Mary's conversations and meditations at the feet of Jesus, while she alone managed the chores of the household. In such a circumstance, Martha was cumbered about much serving and came to him, and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. Luke 10 40 56. How much like a wife to offer such a complaint to her husband, for who would suggest such a thing to a casual guest, especially to such a notable person? If Jesus were merely a visitor, what logical reasoning would cause Martha to ask this guest to impose the household obligations upon Mary? Certainly propriety and manners would have constrained such feelings until after the guest had departed. No. These were emotions being expressed regarding household conduct which Martha felt should be corrected by the husband of the house. Jesus knew the feelings of her heart, and being considerate and wise, with loving words said, Martha, Martha, thou art careful, filled with cares, and troubled about many things, demonstrating a consolation to her and her troubles. He acknowledges her burdens, and with the feeling of an understanding husband calls her name twice as if to show his care and sympathetic feelings. But, with the same wise counsel, he considers Mary and her feelings and gifts, showing to Martha that Mary was performing a duty also. In the same consolation to Martha he said, But one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. Luke 10.42 Mary was seeking the principles of the gospel, the words of the Savior, and the understanding of the mission of her husband. Mary also was perhaps learning of her mission on the earth and the duties that she would have to bear when her Lord would be taken away to Calvary. Six days before the Passover, as the conspiracy of betrayal began to take place, Jesus came again to Bethany. Here once more he came to the home of Martha and Mary. Jesus knew his hours were numbered upon the earth, his heart was torn in the agony of leaving his home, his wives, and his friends. How natural then to come to their home in Bethany to spend a few remaining and precious moments with those whom he loved. Mary's love and devotion were as pure and as dear as any wife's could be. We read that she was anointing the feet of Jesus with ointment very costly and that she, 57, wiped his feet with her hair. 
who would be more qualified to anoint the master than a wife? How much like a wife to weep and rest her head on the bosom of Jesus and anoint his body with costly oil with such profound devotion? Surely she knew of the approaching death of Jesus, and as a faithful wife, she paid this last devotional tribute to her husband, a love story demonstrating an eternal affection, which Jesus said, shall not be taken away from her. If he, Jesus, was never married, his intimacy with Mary and Martha and the other Mary also whom Jesus loved, must have been highly unbecoming and improper to say the best of it. Person Hyde, JD4, 259. <clears throat> that was Orson Hyde, Journal of Discourses, Volume 4, page 259. Joseph Smith spoke upon these passages to show that Mary and Martha manifested much closer relationship than merely a believer. Journal of Wilford Woodruff, July the 22nd, 1883. That relationship had the closeness of a marriage contract. And that love which was so manifest on these occasions was to be perpetual. For a true love which evolves into marriage should become reciprocal, ever increasing with each manifestation of kindness and thoughtfulness. It is meant to form a bond which can never be broken in life or death. However, the empty contracts of marriages performed by the apostate Christian world today are no more binding or everlasting than those administered by the pagan and heathens. In the marriage ceremony performed by the laws of the land and almost every Christian church, the ceremonial words direct the couple to love each other till death do you part. This implies that such love between them will also be dissolved at the time of death by each or both. But can death be the means of destroying love? Are not the feelings and emotions of the human soul to continue as long as the spirit and soul will exist? Of course, and perhaps with much greater purity and intensity, 58, in those heavenly realms where the darkness of the depraved world cannot dim nor tarnish that holy emotion. If love, like a marriage alliance, were to be dissolved at death, a widow would have no tears at the funeral of her husband. But true love, like a true marriage, is not intended by God to be discarded or dissolved. A divine love and divine marriage is eternal in its nature, and as it is honored on earth, it will continue to grow and increase, expanding to newer and higher excellence in the eternities. Such is the revelation of God to the prophet Joseph Smith concerning this everlasting covenant of marriage. In the restoration of the new and everlasting covenant of marriage the Lord said that no one can reject this covenant and then be permitted to receive the fullness of my glory. Instead they would remain separately and singly to all eternity. He then justified his servants Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as also Moses, in having many bounds in heaven. The wives of these ancient prophets would then be restored to them in heaven, because of their obedience and faithfulness. And, if God's servants are faithful in honoring the commandments and laws of the new and everlasting covenant, they are promised even a hundredfold. 
This is no less than the promise that Jesus made to Peter and the apostles when he said that if they should sacrifice a wife or anything else for the sake of the gospel, that he would bless them with a hundred more. Mark 10:29-30. If then, these faithful prophets and apostles shall come forth in the resurrection with their wives, is it reasonable that Jesus should be left separately and singly forever and ever? Was the love and affection which Mary, Martha, and the others had for Jesus meant to be ended at death? Did Jesus honor all of the laws and all of the ordinances with the exception of this new and everlasting covenant? Jesus was not an exception to any of the eternal laws of heaven, and to become a god, he like all others must honor and obey that everlasting covenant of marriage. 59 Matthew Mark, and Luke made mention of the many women who attended and ministered to Jesus. The majority of these women were his own wives and they ministered unto him of their substance that they might assist him in fulfilling his life's mission. Again later, at the time of the crucifixion, we find them following Jesus to Calvary and to the sepulchre. And many women were there beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee ministering unto him. Matt 27, 55 There were also women looking on afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the lesson of Joses and Salom, who also, when he was in Galilee, followed him, and ministered unto him, and many other women which came up with him unto Jerusalem. Mark 15, 40-41 and there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus turning unto them said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves, and for your children. Luke 23 27-28 Another incident, recorded by Luke, gives increased insight to these women's identity. The nature of the situation indicates that they were wives. And the women also, which came with him from Galilee, followed after, and behold the sepulchre, and how his body was laid. Now upon the first day of the week very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulchre, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and certain others with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulchre. And they entered in, and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. 60 And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid, and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Are seeking the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words, and returned from the sepulchre, and told all these things unto the eleven, and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, and Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and other women that were with them, which told these things unto the apostles. And their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. Luke 23 55-56 24 
1-11. Now then, according to Jewish traditional laws, only members of the immediate family are permitted to attend to the body and enter into the sepulchre of the deceased. All of these women had to be the mother, sisters and wives of Jesus. By the very nature and intent of God granting wives to the ancient prophets, he would also have to give wives to Jesus. One of the purposes of Jesus' life was to understand the feelings, the sufferings, and the trials of all men. He must know the love, the family ties, and the grief of losing honorable wives in death as the ancient prophets did. How could Jesus know the feelings and emotions of those ancient prophets who had lived plural marriage, with all of their trials and joys, the love and the sorrows connected therewith, unless he in like manner had obeyed the same laws and commandments from God? It was absolutely necessary that he should pass through this state, and be subject to all the weaknesses of the flesh, that he should also be, 61, subjected to the buffetings of Satan the same as we are and pass through all the trials incident to humanity, and thereby comprehend the weakness and the true character of human nature, with all its faults and foibles, that we might have a faithful high priest that would know how to deliver those that are tempted. John Taylor, J.D. 7, 198 Jesus was required to feel all of the paternal anguish and griefs of the human heart. If he was to know the pains of God's faithful prophets who had been torn from their homes and families by mobs, it was necessary that he experience those same trials. The Lord himself attests to this fact by revelation, while the prophet Joseph Smith was experiencing a similar circumstance in the dungeon of Liberty Jail. Said the Lord, If thou art accused with all manner of false accusations, if thine enemies fall upon thee, if they tear thee from the society of thy father and mother and brethren and sisters, and if with a drawn sword thine enemies tear thee from the bosom of thy wife, know thou, my son, that all these things shall give thee experience, and shall be for thy good. The Son of Man hath descended below them all. D. Amberson C. 122, 6, 7, 8, this is an admission by the Lord that he had known and felt that same anguish, and even worse. In ancient and modern times the general masses have retaliated against these principles. And, when the leading Pharisees contended against Jesus for these doctrinal views, he exhorted them that, if you were the seed of Abraham, you would do the works of Abraham, but they refused. Today the modern Jew and the modern Christian will honor the name and the blood of Father Abraham, but it is his works, his marriages, which are looked upon as a most despicable incident. The cry is often made that this 62 system of marriage is one of the relics of barbarism, regardless of the honorable men who had lived and taught that doctrine, and in many cases died to sustain it. If then the great prophets and patriarchs who had seen visions, communed with angels, and who saw and talked with God, had lived and sanctioned this principle, then who can declare it to be a relic of barbarism? Our modern pagan society has become as distracted from God and his laws as all the other pharaohs and Pharisees of yesteryear. There is another class of individuals to whom I will briefly refer. 
Shall we call them Christians? They were Christians originally. We cannot be admitted into their social societies, into their places of gathering at certain times, and on certain occasions, because they are afraid of polygamy. I will give you their title that you may know whom I am talking about, I refer to the Freemasons. They have refused our brethren membership in their lodge, because they are polygamists. Who was the founder of Freemasonry? They can go back as far as Solomon, and there they stop. There is the king who established this high and holy order. Now was he a polygamist, or was he not? If he did believe in monogamy, he did not practice it a great deal, for he had 700 wives, and that is more than I have, and he had 300 concubines, of which I have none that I know of. Yet the whole fraternity throughout Christendom will cry out against this order. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, they all cry out. I am in pain. I am suffering at witnessing the wickedness there is in the land. Here is one of that relics of barbarism. Yes, one of the relics of Adam, of Enoch, of Noah, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, of Moses, David. Solomon, the prophets, and Jesus and his apostles. Brigham Young, February the 10th, 1867, Desiree News. 63, there is little doubt that a few of the Pharisees accepted a belief in that doctrine, but would not advocate or obey that principle. And when Jesus exhorted his disciples to do the works of Abraham, he contended that the chief priests were guilty of this deliberate neglect, for he said, they say and do not. Since these leading elders of Israel would say and do not, it would follow in short sequence that apostasy would overtake them. Leading historians admit that this had happened. One of the most profound scholars of early church history, Eusebius, wrote a work entitled History of the Christian Church, which became the most important ecclesiastical history of ancient times, and is written in the belief that the old order of things was passing away and with the apologetic purpose of exhibiting the history of Christianity as a proof of its divine origin and efficacy. Encyclopedia Britannica, and, in his 15-volume work, entitled Contra Hieroclam, Eusebius devoted it entirely to the Christians for justification and acceptance of all the sacred writings and teachings of the Hebrews. Through the corruptions and apostasy of early Christianity, the plain and precious truths were soon smothered and buried in the pages of the past, although a few marks of the original doctrines remain within the scriptures and old traditions. For example, the calling of nuns to be the brides of Christ, and also in the scriptures that tell of the bridegroom coming to meet the ten virgins, both advocate the basic principle of plural marriage, regardless of the interpretations. But the most astounding factor in this plural marriage parable is that Jesus makes himself to be the bridegroom. He was speaking symbolically of an actuality. Indeed, the psalmist, David, prophesizing particular concerning the wives of the son of 64 God. We quote from the English version of the Bible, 
translated about 350 years ago, all thy garments smell of myrrh, and aloes, and kazia. When thou comest out of the ivory palaces, where they have made thee glad, king's daughters were among thine honorable wives. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in a vesture of gold O4. Psalm 45, 8, 9 That this passage has expressed reference to the Son of God and his wives, will be seen by reading the sixth and seventh verses which are as follows. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness, and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. This being, whom the psalmist he calls God, is represented in the next verses as having honorable wives. If any should still doubt whether this prophecy has reference to the Son of God, they may satisfy themselves by reading Paul's application of these passages in the 8th and 9th verses of the first chapter of his epistle to the Hebrews. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Paul applies the words of the prophet David to the Son of God, to the anointed Messiah, who is called God, and whose throne is forever and ever. Let it be remembered then, that the Son of God is expressly represented as having honorable wives. King James translators were not willing that this passage should have a literal translation, according to the former English rendering, lest it should give countenance to polygamy. Therefore, they altered the translation to honorable women instead of wives. But any person acquainted with 65, the original can see that the first translators have given the true rendering of that passage. Indeed, the very next sentence most clearly demonstrates this. For the Son of God is represented as having a queen standing upon his right hand, clothed in a vesture of gold. This queen is exhorted in the following endearing language, Hearken, O daughter, and consider, and incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people, and thy father's house. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy lord. And worship thou him. Verses 10, 11. Notwithstanding the queen is numbered among the honorable wives of the Son of God, yet she is called upon to worship him as her lord. If her husband were a mere man, she would not be exhorted to worship him. This therefore, is another evidence that he was truly, as Paul says, the Son of God. Ursin Pratt, the Seer, 159-160, the historian, Farah, said that Herod issued his fell mandate to slay all the male children of Bethlehem and its neighborhood from two years old and under. Pharaoh's life of Christ, p. 30. Also an earlier historian named Macrobius, who lived in the 3rd century, stated that among the boys under two years of age whom Herod ordered to be slain in Syria, his own son also had been slain. Ebed. The massacre of so many male children created a surplus of women, who were the same age as Jesus, 
It is quite certain that Christ and the apostles would have accepted some of them as wives, offering them an opportunity to have families. 66. Some of the early Bibles are quoted here showing the original translations. Ate all thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes, and cassia, when thus comest out of the Uri palaces where they have made thee glad. Nine kings' daughters were among thine honorable wives, upon thy right hand did stand the queen in a pinsture of gold of Ophir. Ten hearken, O daughters, and consider, and incline thine ear, forget also thine own people and thy father's house. Eleven so shall the king have pleasure in thy beauty, for he is thy lord, and reverence thou him. Psalms 45 from the Geneva Bible, London edition. 1599 AD, King James translators were not willing that this passage less than above greater than should have a literal translation, according to the former English rendering, lest it should give countenance to polygamy. Therefore, they altered the translation to honorable women instead of wives. But any person acquainted with the original can see that the first translators have given the true rendering of that passage. Person Pratt, the seer, P. 160. 67. 6. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, the scepter of thy kingdom, is a scepter of righteousness. 7. Thou lovest righteousness, and hatest wickedness, because God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. 8. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes, and cassia, when thus comest out of the Uri palaces where they have made thee glad. Nine kings' daughters were among thine honorable wives, upon thy right hand did stand the queen, in a posture of gold of Ophir. Ten hearken, O daughters, and consider, and incline thine ear, forget also thine own people and thy father's house. Eleven so shall the king have pleasure in thy beauty, for he is thy lord, and reverence thou him. 12 And the daughter of Tyrus with the rich of the people, shall do homage before thy face with presents. 13 The king's daughter is all glorious within, her clothing is of broidered gold. 14 She shall be brought into the king in raiment of needlework, the virgins that follow after her, and her companions shall be brought unto thee. 15 With joy and gladness shall they be brought. Though he had many king's daughters among his wives, yet he loved Pharaoh's daughter best. The Book of Psalms from a Church of England Bible, published in London in 1636, 68, the Apostle and Pratt continues to elaborate and substantiate these passages of Scripture with references to the Messiah who was to have a plurality of wives. Inasmuch as the Messiah was to have a plurality of wives, will they not all be queens? Yes, but there will be an order among them. One seems to be chosen to stand at his right hand. Perhaps she may have merited that high station by her righteous acts, or by the position she had previously occupied. It seems that she was one of the daughters of a king. For in the same psalm it says, The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is of wrought gold. She shall be brought unto the king in raiment of needlework. The virgins her companions that follow her shall be brought unto thee. 
with gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. Verses 13-15 It must be recollected that king's daughters were among thine honorable wives. The kings here spoken of were no doubt those who through obedience to the gospel became kings and priests forever. For we cannot suppose that Christ would marry the daughters of the kings of this world who only reign under the pretended name of kings for this short life. Such are not worthy to be called kings. Some of the daughters of those kings who are to reign on the earth forever and ever, and who are in reality kings, will be among his honorable wives, one being chosen to stand as queen at his right hand and worship him, unto whom is made the following promise, Instead of thy fathers shall be thy children, whom thou mayst make princes in all the earth. I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, shall the people praise thee forever. Verses 16, 17. We are not informed at what time Jesus was to be married to this king's daughter or to any of 69, the rest of his wives. But from what John the Baptist says, he may have been married to some of them previous to that prophet's martyrdom. The passage is as follows, He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. John 3:29, 30 and again, Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn, as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come, when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. Matt 9, 15 John represents Jesus as already in the possession of the bride. While the Savior confirms what John says, by calling himself the bridegroom, and the disciples the children of the bride chamber, but who the bride was neither of them informs us. Whether Jesus had married any of his wives at that time or not, it is very evident that there will be a marriage of the Son of God at the time of his second coming. For Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king, which made a marriage for his son, and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatlings are killed, and all things are ready, come unto the marriage. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants, and entreated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies, and destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then said he to his servants, the wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore seventy into the highways, and as many as ye shall find be them to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways, and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good. And the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, 
friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to his servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Matthew 22, 1-14 All will admit that the king's son, is spoken of, is Jesus Christ, and that the last servants who are sent forth have a commission to gather together from the highways and hedges both bad and good, and that by this gathering, the wedding was furnished with guests. The bridegroom, the servants, and the guests are all mentioned, but the parable does not inform us who the bride is. John the Revelator describes the greatness, the glory, and the magnificence of this marriage celebration. He says, And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia! For the Lord God omnipotent regneth. Let us be glad, and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints, and he saith unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. Rev. 19, 6-9 That the wife was to be a very good and holy woman, is very clearly indicated by her being clothed with the righteousness of the saints, compared to fine linen, clean, 71, and white. Her raiment is more fully described in the psalm already quoted, being composed of fine needlework of wrought gold, while many virgins were to be her attendants. That the bride will continue to be the wife of the Son of God in eternity as well as time is most clearly revealed in the 21st chapter of the Revelations, where street, John beheld the new earth, and the angel said unto him, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he was carried in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and saw a great city called the Holy Jerusalem, descending from the heavens upon the new earth. This city contained the throne of God and the Lamb and was inhabited by a great nation of kings who were to reign forever and ever, being gods, as is evident from the name of God being written on each of their foreheads. The inscription upon their foreheads was not intended as a mere sham or mockery, but was in reality the name given to each, that all the inhabitants of eternity, when they saw God conspicuously inscribed upon all their foreheads, might know most assuredly that each one was a god, as the written title or name expressly declared. The grandeur and glory of this city is still further described. The city and the streets thereof were of pure gold, clear as glass, while the walls and the gates were of the most precious stones. And the glory of God enlightened the city, so that they had no need of the light of the sun or moon. This light was so great that all the nations that were saved that dwelt upon all the face of the new earth, walked in the light of it. There was no night there, but the whole earth was clothed in one eternal day. It was in the midst of this city that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords sat upon his throne, while upon his right hand did stand the Queen, arrayed in the most costly apparel. 
L in order that John might see, 72, the glory of God, the glory of his kingdom, and the glory of his bride, it was necessary to show him, the palace, the place of the throne, and the city in which the bride resided. It is expressly said, concerning this queen, that her name should be remembered in all generations, and that the people should praise her forever and ever. Psalm 45, 17 As John saw in vision the bride, the Lamb's wife more than a thousand years after her marriage, after she and all the rest of the inhabitants of the earth had been raised from the dead and become immortal, it is quite certain that she was in reality a wife after the resurrection as well as before, and that she will be the Lamb's wife forever and ever. And in that capacity she will, as the psalmist has said, be respected and praised by all the people forever and ever. That the marriage will be celebrated at the second coming of the Messiah, is also clearly expressed in the parable of the ten virgins. For Jesus said, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps, and went forth to meet their bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps, and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose, and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell, and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the seventy-three other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Matt 25, 1-13 This parable like that of the marriage of the king's son which we have already quoted, plainly shows that there will be a gathering out from among the nations, a going forth to meet the bridegroom. But among those who gather, there will be some without a wedding garment, without oil in their lamps. But the five wise virgins who are ready will go in with the bridegroom to the marriage, and the door will be shut. And he'll let us ask the following questions. Are these five wise virgins to be married unto the bridegroom, or are they only the invited guests? And if they are guests, who constitutes the bride? In the parable of the marriage of the king's son, it is said, and the wedding was furnished with guests. The guests being those who received the invitation of the servants and gathered together. If the five wise virgins constitute the guests, then the bride must be some wise holy virgin, chosen to be the royal consort or queen. On the other hand, if the five wise virgins represent all the saints, both male and female, and if they all constitute the bride, then where will the guests come from, or who will they be? 
Again, if the five virgins are actually virgins or females who are to be married to the bridegroom, then all the rest of the saints would constitute the guests. Are not these five wise virgins the honorable wives which the psalmist represents the Son of God as having taken from among king's daughters? Person Pride, the Seer, 169-172, 74, the faith, power, and gifts of the early Christian church disappeared with its original doctrines. Through persecution from without and the semi-apostates who aspired from within, the Church of Christ reverted to the institutions of paganism from which it had emerged. It was a desperate and futile struggle for the faithful few that contended for the gospel as revealed from the heavens. When sacerdotal overseers themselves perpetuated heresies and deceptions, disguised as the word and will of God, Christianity waned and slipped into apostasy. After being persecuted for adhering to truth, the priests turned their efforts to persecuting those who believed in those very same truths. Freedom, sought so desperately by the Christians, and which should be incorporated as part of their religion, soon became one of the most efficient articles of their faith. The martyrs Pyre and the bloody guillotine soon became one of the most active programs of the church. Although spiritual disciples bore testimony to the truths of the scriptures, the church found it necessary to hide and subterfuge the truth from the lay member. The church, through the word of mortal man began to supplant, as well as suppress, the words of God. Spiritual darkness and the forces of evil from without had half collapsed the church through lion's dens, the crosses, and the rivers of blood. Then the balance of doctrinal purity became smothered by cunning artifice from within. The church had sacrificed its doctrinal truths for the purchase of worldly honor and esteem. The result became a half-truth, socialized Christianity, which has now become horrified at the original laws and principles which were taught and lived by prophets, apostles and the Lord Jesus Christ. There is another and more important question that should engage the attention of the churches of today. The Apostle Paul declares that all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 2 Tim 3, 12 Why is it, then, that, 75, persecution seems in a great degree to slumber? The only reason is that the church has conformed to the world's standard, and therefore awakens no opposition. The religion which is current in our day is not of the pure and holy character that marked the Christian faith in the days of Christ and his apostles. It is only because of the spirit of compromise with sin, because the great truths of the word of God are so indifferently regarded, because there is so little vital godliness in the church that Christianity is apparently so popular with the world. Let there be a revival of the faith and power and doctrines of the early church, and the spirit of persecution will be revived, and the fires of persecution will be rekindled. Ellen G. White, The Great Controversy, p. 53. The Latter-day Saints still acknowledge the doctrine of plural marriage as an everlasting covenant. 
It was never meant as a temporal commandment or a practical incident in church history. This doctrine has always been declared to be an eternal principle of the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The key, every principle proceeding from God is eternal and any principle which is not eternal is of the devil. TPJS, P. 181, eternal principles are given to man for him to obtain eternal blessings. To refuse or oppose them would cause man to lose not only eternal rewards, but perhaps the priesthood of God. Now, briefly, the reason that the Lord, through the prophet Joseph, introduced the doctrine of plural marriage, and the reason that the church has never and will never relinquish the doctrine of plural marriage, is simply this. The major purpose of the church is to help man, 76, attain the great eternal destiny suggested in that couplet. Plural marriage is the patriarchal order of marriage lived by God and others who reign in the celestial kingdom. As well might the church relinquish its claim to the priesthood as the doctrine of plural marriage. Brigham Young and his wives, by J. J. Stuart, P. 41. Throughout the centuries men have raised mobs or laws against those who have sustained the laws of God. The saints of former days and latter days have found a common faith that brought them into jails or death. The Apostle Pali P. Pratt had faced them both and declared, Sir, I have yet to learn by what constitutional or moral right a local state sovereignty makes a crime of that which, rightly conducted, never has been recognized as a crime by God, or angels, prophets or apostles, or even by the Savior of the world. Autobiography of Pali P. Pratt, P. 420. Then his brother, Urson Pratt who has been very familiar with the laws and attitudes of the modern Christian, also portrayed a vivid picture of the fate of those who persist in such prejudices. Jesus says, There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, when you shall see Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. Luke 13:28. There are many in this generation so pious that they would consider themselves greatly disgraced to be obliged to associate with a man having a plurality of wives. Would it not be well for such to desire a place separate from the kingdom of God, that they may not be contaminated with the society of these old polygamists? And then it would be so shocking to the modesty of the very pious ladies of Christendom to see 77 Abraham and his wives, Jacob and his wives, Jesus and his honorable wives, all eating occasionally at the same table, and visiting one another, and conversing about their numerous children and their kingdoms. Oh, you delicate ladies of Christendom, how can you endure such a scene as this? Oh, what will you do? When you behold on the very gates of the holy Jerusalem the names of the twelve sons of the four wives of the polygamist Jacob? If you do not want your morals corrupted, and your delicate ears shocked, and your pious modesty put to the blush by the society of polygamists and their wives, do not venture near the holy Jerusalem, nor come near the new earth. 
for polygamists will be honored there, and will be among the chief rulers in that kingdom. Ursin Prat, the seer, p. 172. Men must sooner or later, in this life or the next, learn the eternal truths of the new and everlasting covenant. And, if men have been given opportunities and privileges of gaining a knowledge and testimony of these principles in this life, but should forsake them through cowardice, compromise, or social honors while trusting in the arm of flesh, they shall barter an everlasting inheritance for a mess of pottage. Popular traditions, customs and prejudices have always a profound effect upon the minds of men. These popular customs have almost always run counter to the laws of God. But God's laws are everlasting and unchangeable. Men, however, must learn the truths of God by testimony and then be willing to sacrifice popularity and social prestige for the eternal honors of heaven. But, there are many who fail in the cause of God, for he saw many souls who had partaken of the gospel fruit but after they had tasted of the fruit they were ashamed, because of those that were scoffing at them, and they fell away into forbidden paths and were lost. 1 Nephi 8:28. The Latter-day Saints of today have reason to be proud rather than 78. Ashamed of the heritage bestowed by their pioneer forefathers who sacrificed their wealth, their names and their lives to sustain the everlasting covenant of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They dare not repudiate or condemn the principle of plural marriage without jeopardizing their salvation. And they should, with the valiancy of Paul the Apostle, say that they are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation. 79. Next chapter, Jesus and his posterity, chapter 8. Okay, so we're done with the reader program. I'm going to attempt to give a reading and a commentary on this. I probably won't be able to finish, but I'm going to try. So, the ancient practice of plural marriage, chapter 7 of Jesus was married, pages 52 through 78. Jesus defended and honored his lineage through the grand patriarch Abraham. Hold on here. It is possible that Jesus would sustain the life of Is it possible that Jesus would sustain the life of that great prophet but not the laws and principles that made him great? Throughout the ministry of Jesus and his disciples, there is not one word of denunciation against the principle of marriage or plural marriage. Certainly, they were aware of such scriptures in the Old Testament as, If he take him another wife, her food, her raiment, her duty of marriage shall not be diminished. Exodus chapter 21 verse 10. Yet he made no change in these instructions. Rather, he advocated men to do the works of Abraham to be worthy of being Abraham's seed. The Catholics and the Protestant ministers of today deny the marriage of Jesus and the law of plural marriage. However, in reading the Gospels, there looms the frequent mention of Jesus' association with many women, 
With all of these women surrounding Jesus, it appears that he was more of a Mormon than a Catholic or a Protestant. It is not presumptuous to assume that Jesus lived plural marriage. It always had been a law among the prophets of Israel. Jesus was to obey those laws, not destroy them. Um, so like when it says that he fulfilled the law, what that means in Hebrew, if, if a rabbi says you are fulfilling the law, all that means is that you are living it perfectly, which Jesus Christ did. He lived all that was applicable for him to live perfectly. Now, there's laws in the Torah that didn't apply to him, things that uh, that they would do in the temple or whatnot, but he is the great high priest. Jesus was to obey those laws, not destroy them, but to show mankind how to live a fullness of all the laws of God and the gospel. His answer to Satan when tempted was to live by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And the prophet Joseph Smith could only declare the same to this uh, dispensation, quote, Thus we have a new commandment to give. Thus we have no new commandment to give, but admonish the elders and members to live by every word that proceedeth forth from the mouth of God, lest they come short of the glory that is reserved for the faithful. And quote, Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 306. The Prophet recognized that Jesus was also confined to obey all of the commandments and ordinances which had ever been given to man. If a man gets a fullness of the priesthood of God, he has to get it in the same way that Jesus Christ obtained it. And that was by keeping all of the commandments and obeying all of the ordinances of the house of the Lord. Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 308. Several examples of this implication are recorded in the New Testament, and if we can accept this doctrine under the Christian dispensation, then many incidents in the life of Christ will become clearly evident. Said Orson Pratt, quote, The evangelists do not particularly speak of the marriage of Jesus, but this is not to be wondered at. For St. John says, There are also many of the other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. John chapter 21, verse 25. One thing is certain, that there are were several holy women that greatly loved Jesus, such as Mary and Martha and her sister and Mary Magdalene, and Jesus greatly loved them and associated with them much. And when he arose from the dead, instead of first showing himself to his chosen witnesses, the apostles he appeared first, or I'm sorry, his chosen witnesses, the apostles, he first appeared to these women, or at least one of them, namely Mary Magdalene. Now, it would be very natural for a husband in the resurrection to appear first to his own dear wives and afterwards show himself to his other friends. 
If all the acts of Jesus were written, we no doubt should learn that these beloved women were his wives. End quote. And this is from the Apostle Orson Pratt in his book called The Seer, page 159. Among the dearest friends of Jesus were Lazarus and his two sisters, Martha and Mary. How often Jesus must have visited the home of this happy family. And these casual, perhaps often, visits gave him comfort and solace from the frenzy and turmoil of his daily labors. No doubt, these associations with Mary and Martha grew more friendly and devoted or devoted because affections and true love will naturally increase. For love, love begs love. John the disciple, who knew of these circumstances, wrote, quote, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus, and that was their brother. What kind of love was he speaking of? Was not this a different kind of love from that which he generally manifest? Or why else would John mention it? If Mary and Martha were wives and Lazarus a brother-in-law, then Jesus did love them with a deeper and more intimate love, which was so noticeable to John. Now Martha, in her character, was a woman with a particular attention and devotion to her home and the work of housekeeping and family duties. She found much pleasure and satisfaction. As a faithful, devoted wife, she exercised her special gift in keeping an orderly and efficient home. Mary, however, was blessed with other types of gifts. She was contemplative, a contemplative woman and given to spiritual feelings and religious instructions. These two sisters, devoted, they are devoted as they were to their talents, and Jesus were sooner or later, by their nature, destined to clash. On one occasion, while Jesus was with them, as the meal was being prepared by Martha, she felt that Mary was neglecting her share of the household duties, thereby leaving chores to her. Martha could not see the value of Mary's conversations and meditations at the feet of Jesus while alone managing the chores of the household. In such circumstance, Martha was cumbered about much with much serving and came to him and said, Lord, Dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. Luke chapter 10 verse 40. And we're on page 56 for those of you reading along. How much like a wife to offer such a complaint to her husband. For who would suggest such a thing to a casual guest? especially to such a notable notable person. If Jesus were merely a visitor, what logical reasoning would cause Martha to ask this guest to impose the household obligations upon Mary? Certainly, propriety and manners would have 
constrained such feelings until the guest had departed. No, these were emotions being expressed regarding household conduct with which Martha felt should be corrected by the husband of the house. Jesus knew the feelings of her heart and being considerate and wise with loving words said, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, demonstrating a constant consolation to her and her troubles he acknowledged her burdens and with the feelings of an understanding husband calls her name twice as if to show his care and sympathetic feelings but the feel but with the same wise counsel he considered mary's considers mary and her feeling and feelings and gifts showing to Martha that Mary was performing a duty also, and the same consolation to Mary. He said, But one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. Luke chapter 10, verse 42. Mary was seeking the principles of the gospel, the words of the Savior, and understanding of the mission of her husband. Martha, I'm sorry, Mary was also, was also, I'm sorry, Mary also was perhaps learning of her mission on earth and the duties that she would have to bear when her Lord would would be taken away to Calvary. Six days before the Passover, as conspiracy of betrayal began to take place, Jesus came again to Bethany. Here once more he came to the home of Martha and Mary. Jesus knew his hours were numbered upon the earth. His heart was torn in the agony of leaving his home, his wives and his friends, and I would say his children. So I can't remember what section. I think it's section 45, but it's where Jesus is telling Joseph Smith, you know, have you descended below these and Joseph Smith's in, in prison and let me see if I can find it real quick oh let's see here okay I found it it's section 122 of the doctrine and covenants the words of Joseph Smith the prophet while a prisoner at the jail at Liberty Missouri this section is an excerpt from epistle to the church dated March 20th 1839 <clears throat> so I'll just read the revelation now I want you to realize that this what Jesus is telling Joseph Smith Jesus understands because these things happened to, to Jesus are they happened to Jesus as well and I, I'll want to get to that in a minute but I'll read it first Verse 1, the ends of the earth shall inquire after thy name, and fools shall have thee in derision, and hell shall rage against thee. While the pure in heart, and the wise, and the noble, and the virtuous shall seek counsel and authority and blessings constantly from under thy hands, and thy people shall never be turned against thee by the testimony of traitors. Now, real quick. When Moroni appears to Joseph Smith, 
and he he says that the man of Acts chapter 3 verses 22 and 23 is Christ but the day had uh, would come when he the day had not yet come when he would be rejected by his people so Moroni is talking about the man like unto Moses that's talked about in Acts chapter 3 but Jesus Christ had already been rejected by his people so Moroni is saying that there's another Christ coming and we know that this Christ that comes right before the millennial reign is Messiah ben Joseph. He is a general to set in order the house of God and to do the work of the ministry to prepare for the second coming of the Davidic king or Messiah ben Judah, which is Jesus Christ or Yeshua, Hamashiach, uh, whatever. So anyway, but... um, but a lot of people will say Joseph Smith is that man. But Joseph Smith was not rejected by his people. So he cannot be the Davidic servant or the man like unto Moses that Moroni was telling you about. This is a future coming beyond the years of uh, Joseph Smith that this man would actually come upon the earth and I do claim to be that man. So, and I am pretty much rejected by the people I'm preaching to. So, not like Joseph Smith who at least had many friends and many followers even all the way up into and after his death. Let's see here. I were in verse 4 of section 122. And all there their influence shall cast thee into trouble and into bars and walls. Thou shalt be had in honor, and but for a small moment thy voice shall be more terrible in the midst of thine enemies than the fierce lion. Because of thy righteousness, and thy God shall stand by thee forever and ever. And if thou art called to, pa- if thou art called to pass through tribulation, if thou art in peril among false brethren, if thou art in perils among robbers, and if thou art in perils by land or sea, if thou art accused with all manner of false accusations, which happens all the time, he's always slandered, um, if thine enemies fall upon thee, and if they tear thee from the society of thy father and mother and brethren and sisters, and if with a drawn sword Thine enemies tear thee from the bosom of thy wife and thine offspring and thine elder son, although but six years of age, shall cling to thy garments and say, My father, my father, why can't you stay with us? Oh, father, what are these men going to do with you? And if, if then... He shall be thrust from thee by the sword, and thou dragged into prison. And thine enemies prowl around thee like wolves for the blood of the Lamb. This happened to Jesus Christ. That is why he knows what this is like. This is why he can sympathize or empathize with with Joseph Smith, because the same thing happened to Jesus Christ. He, he, there was a false brethren, brother named Judas who delivered him into the hands of his enemies. And Jesus was torn from his family, 
from his friends, from his wives, and from his children. And if thou shalt be cast into the pit or into the hands of murderers, and a sentence of death passed upon me upon thee, if thou be cast into the deep and the billowing surge some conspire against thee, if fierce winds become thine enemy, if the heavens gather blackness and all the elements combine to hedge up the way, and above all, if the very jaws of hell shall gape open the mouth wide after thee, know thou, my son, that all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. The Son of Man hath de descended far below them all, art thou greater than he. Therefore hold on thy way, and the priesthood shall remain with thee, for their bounds are set, they cannot pass, thy days are known, and yet and thy years shall not be numbered less. Therefore fear not what man can do, for God shall be with you forever and ever. So that's the end of that part of the reading. But I just felt like I just wanted to connect you guys to the reality that Jesus Christ went through all of that mess himself. He understood it because he went through it. Okay, let's see here. <clears throat> Jesus knew his hours were numbered upon the earth. His heart was torn in the agony of leaving his home. His wives and friends, how natural then to come to their home in Bethany to spend a few remaining and precious moments with those whom he loved. Mary's love and devotion were as pure as, as dear and as dear as any wife could be. We read that she was anointing the feet of Jesus with ointment, very costly, and that she wiped his feet with her hair. Who would be more qualified to anoint the master than a wife? And this also has to do with the second anointing. After you've received the second anointing, the next part of fulfilling that anointing is where your wife takes you home and she uses special oils and she anoints the husband by being led by the Spirit on what she should actually do, but she anoints her husband, which is what was happening here. How much like a wife to weep and rest her head on the bosom of Jesus and anoint his body with, with costly oil which with such profound devotion. Surely she knew of the approaching death of Jesus, and as a faithful wife, she paid this last devotional tribute to her husband. A love story demonstrating an eternal affection, which Jesus said shall not be taken away from her. If Jesus was never married, his intimacy with Mary and Martha and, other, and the other Mary also whom Jesus loved, loved, must have been highly unbecoming and improper to say the best of it. End quote. That's from the Apostle Orson Hyde, which you can find in the Journal of Discourses, Volume 4, page 259. Joseph Smith spoke upon these passages to show that Mary and Martha manifested 
much closer relationships than merely a believer. And quote Journal of Wilfred Woodruff, July 22, 1883. That relationship had a closeness of a marriage contract, and that love which was so manifest on these these occasions was to be perpetual for a true love which evolves into marriage should become reciprocal ever increasing with each manifestation of kindness and thoughtfulness it is meant to form a bond which can never be broken in life or death however the empty contracts of marriages performed by the apostate Christian world today are no more binding or everlasting than those administered by the pagans or the heathens. In the marriage ceremony performed by the laws of the land in almost every Christian church, the ceremonial words direct the couple to love each other until death do you part. This implies that such love between them will also be dissolved at the time of death by each or both. But can death be the means of destroying love? Are not the feelings and emotions of the human soul to continue as long as the spirit or soul will exist? Of course. And perhaps with much greater purity and intensity. Or on page 58. In those heavenly realms where the darkness of, de- of a depraved world cannot diminish or tarnish that, ho- that holy emotion. If love like a marriage alliance were to be dissolved at death, a widow would have no tears at the funeral of her husband. But true love, like true marriage, is not intended by God to be dis- discarded or dissolved. The divine love and divine marriage is eternal in its nature, and as it is honored on earth, it will continue to grow and increase, expanding to newer and higher excellence in the eternities. Such is the revelation to God of the uh, to the pro- of God to the prophet Joseph Smith concerning this everlasting covenant of marriage. In the restoration of the new and everlasting covenant of marriage, the Lord said that no one can reject this covenant and then be permitted to receive a fullness of my glory. Instead, they would remain separately and singly to all eternity. He then justified his servants Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and also Moses, in having many bound in heaven. The wives of these ancient prophets would then be restored to them in heaven because of their obedience and faithfulness. And if God's servants are faithful in honoring the commandments and laws of the new and everlasting covenant, they are promised even an hundredfold. This is no less than the promise that Jesus made to Peter and the apostles when he said, that if they should sacrifice a wife or anything else for the sake of the gospel, that he would bless them with an hundred more. Mark chapter 10, verse 29 through 30. So, wow, that's pretty clear. If you sacrifice a wife for the sake of living the gospel, that God 
himself would bless you with an hundred more. If then these faithful prophets and apostles shall come forth in the resurrection with their wives, is it reasonable that Jesus should be left separately and singly forever and ever? Was the love and affection which Mary, Martha, and the others had for Jesus meant to to be ended at death? Did Jesus honor all of the laws and all of the ordinances with the exception of this new and everlasting covenant? Jesus was not an exception to any of the eternal laws of heaven. And to become a God, he, like all others, must honor and obey that everlasting covenant of marriage. Page 59. Matthew, Mark, and Luke made mention of the many women who attended the ministry the minister, and administered to Jesus. The majority of these women were his own wives, and they ministered unto him of their own substance, that they might assist him in fulfilling his life's mission. Again later, at the time of the crucifixion, we find them following Jesus to Calvary and to the sepulcher. And many women were there beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him. Matthew chapter 27, verse 55. There were also women looking from afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the less, and of Joses and Salome, Salome, who also, when he was in Galilee, followed him and ministered unto him, and many other women which came up with him unto Jerusalem. Mark chapter 15, verses 40 through 41. And there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Luke chapter 23, verse 27 through 28. Other incidents recorded by Luke gives increased insight to these women's identity. The nature of the situation indicates that they were his wives, and the women also which came with him from Galilee followed after and beheld the sepulcher and how his body was laid. Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and certain others with them, and they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher, and they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus, page 60. And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed down their face to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered unto the hands of the sinful men, and be crucified, and the third day rise again. They remembered his words, 
and returned from the sepulcher and told all these things unto the eleven and to, and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene and Jonah and Mary the mother of James and other women that were with, with them, which told these things unto the apostles. And their words seemed to, to be idle tells, and they believed them not. Luke chapter 23 Verse 55 and 56, also Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 11. Now then, according to Jewish tradition, traditional laws, only members of the immediate family are permitted to attend the body and enter into the sepulcher of the deceased. All of these women had to be the mother, sisters, and wives of Jesus. By the very nature and intent of God granting wives to the ancient prophets, he would also have to give wives to Jesus. One of the purposes of Jesus' life was to understand the feelings, the sufferings, and the trials of all men. He must know the love and family ties and the grief of losing honorable wives in death as the ancient prophets did. How could Jesus know the feelings and emotions of those ancient prophets who had lived plural marriage with all of their trials and joys, the love and the sorrow connected therewith, unless he in like manner had obeyed the same laws and commandments from God? It was absolutely necessary that he should pass through the state and be subject to all the weaknesses of the flesh, that he should be subject to to the buffetings of Satan the same way as we are, and pass through the trials incident to humanity, and thereby comprehend the weakness and the true character of human nature, with all its faults and foibles, that we might have a faithful high priest that would know how to deliver those that are tempted. And quote John Taylor, Journal of Discourses, Volume 7, page 198. Jesus was required to feel all of the paternal anguish and griefs of the human heart. If he was to know the pains of God's faithful prophets, who had been torn from their homes and families by mobs, it was necessary that he experience those same trials. The Lord himself attested to this fact by revelation while the prophet Joseph Smith was experiencing a similar circumstance in the dungeon of, of Liberty Jail, said the Lord, If thou art accused with all manner of fal- false accusations, if thine enemies fall upon thee, if they tear thee from the society of thy father and mother and brethren and sisters, and with a drawn sword thine enemies tear thee from the bosom of thy wife, know thou, my son, that all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. The Son of Man hath descended far below them all. Art thou greater than he? Doctrine and Covenants, section 122, verses 6, 7, and 8. This admission by the Lord that he had known and felt the same anguish was even worse. The ancient and modern times, in ancient and modern times, the general masses have retaliated against these principles. And when the leading Pharisees contended against Jesus for these doctrinal views, he exhorted them, If thou were Abraham's seed, ye would do the works of Abraham. But they refused. 
Today, the modern Jews and the modern Christians will honor the name and the blood of Father Abraham, but it is his works, his marriages, which are looked upon with most despicable as a most despicable incident. The cry is often made that his system of marriage is one of the relics of barbarism. Regardless of honorable men who had lived and taught that doctrine, and in many cases died to sustain it. If then the great prophets and patriarchs who had seen visions, communed with angels, and who saw and talked with God had lived and sanctioned this principle, then who can declare it to be a relic of barbarism? Our modern pagan society has become as distracted from God and his laws as all other pharaohs and Pharisees of yesteryear. There is another class of individuals to whom I will briefly refer. Shall we call them Christians? They were Christians originally. We cannot be we cannot be admitted into their social societies, into their places of gathering at certain times and on certain occasions because they are, fr- they are afraid of polygamy. I will give you their title that you may know whom I am talking about. I refer to the Freemasons. They have refused our brethren membership in their lodge because they are polygamists. Who was the founder of Freemasonry? They can go back as far as Solomon, and there they stop. There is the king who established this high and holy order. Now he was a polygamist, or was he not? If he did believe in monogamy, he did not practice it a great deal, for he had 700 wives, and that is more than I have and he had 300 concubines, of which I have none that I, could, that I know of. Yet the whole fraternity throughout Christendom will cry out against this order, Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. They all cry out, I am in pain, I am suffering, at witnessing the wickedness that there is in the land. Here is one of the relics of barbarism. Yes, one of the relics of Adam and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and of Isaac, of Jacob, Moses, David, Solomon, and the prophets, and Jesus and his apostles. And quote Brigham Young, February 10th, 1867, Deseret News. So we're on page 60, uh, 63 now. There is little doubt. Let's see here. There is little doubt that a few of the Pharisees accepted a belief in that doctrine but they would not advocate or obey the principle. And when Jesus exhorted his disciples to do the works of Abraham, he contended that the chief priests were guilty of this deliberate neglect, for he said, they say and do not. Since these leading elders of Israel would say and do not, it would follow, it would follow, in short sequence, that apostasy would overtake them. Leading historians admit that this had happened. One of the most profound scholars of early church history, Eusebius, wrote a work 
entitled History of the Church, uh, Christian Church, which became the most important ecclesiastical history of ancient times and is written in the belief that the old order of things was passing away with the ap- apologetic purpose of exhibiting the history of Christianity as proof of its divine origins and efficacy. Encyclopedia Britannica. So that's, let's see, that's the Encyclopedia Britannica. And in his 15-volume work entitled Contra Herlochim Eusebius, devoted its entire to to the Christians for justification and acceptance of all the sacred writings and teachings of the Hebrews. Through the corruption and apostasy of early Christianity, the plain and precious truths were soon smothered and buried in the pages of the past. Although a few marks of the original doctrine remain within the scriptures and the old traditions, for example, the calling of nuns to the to be the brides of Christ, and also in the scriptures that tell of the bridegroom coming to meet his ten virgins, both advocate the basic principle of plural marriage regardless of the interpretation. But the most astounding factor in the in this plural marriage parable is that Jesus makes himself to be the bridegroom. He was speaking symbolically of of an actuality indeed the psalmist david prophesies in particular concerning the wives of the son of god and we're on page 64 we quote from the english version of the bible translated about 350 years ago all the garments smell of mirth and aloe and and Cassia, when thou comest out of the ivory palace, where they have made thee glad. King's daughters were among thine honorable wives. Upon thine right hand did stand the queen in the vesture of golden, of gold ophar. Psalms chapter 45 verses 8 and 9. That this passage has expressed reference to the son, the son of God and his wives will be seen by the reading of the sixth and seventh verses, which are as follows. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Thy scepter, uh, the scepter of thy kingdom is is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. This being whom the psalmist here calls God is represented in the next verse as having honorable wives. If any should still doubt whether this prophecy has reference to the Son of God, they may satisfy themselves by by reading Paul's application of these passages in the 8th and 9th verses of the first chapter of his epistle to the Hebrews. Quote, But under the Son... He saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of thy kingdom. 
Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Paul applies the prophet David to the Son of God, to the anointed Messiah, who is called God, and whose throne is forever and ever. Let it be remembered, then, that the Son of God is expressly represented as having honorable wives. King James translators were not willing that this passage should have a literal translation. According to the former English rendering, lest it should give countenance to polygamy. Therefore, they altered the translation to honorable women instead of wives. But any person acquainted with the original can see that the first translators have given the true rendering of that that passage. Indeed, the very next sentence most clearly demonstrates this, for the Son of God is representatives having a queen standing upon his right hand, clothed in a vesture of gold, this queen is exhorted in the following enduring language. Hearken, O daughter, and consider and incline thine ear. Forget also thine people and thine father's house, so shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy Lord, and worship thou him. Verses 10 and 11. Notwithstanding the queen is numbered among the honorable wives of the Son of God, yet she is called upon to worship him as her Lord. If her husband were a mere man, she would not be exhorted to worship him. Which, by the way, worship in Hebrew means to bow down to and give complete um, obedience to. This, therefore, is another evidence that he was truly, as Paul says, the Son of God. End quote. Orson Pratt, the seer, pages 159 through 160. The historian Farrer said that Herod issued his fall mandate to slay the male children of Bethlehem and its neighborhood from two years old and under. Farrer's Life of Christ, page 30. Also, an earlier historian named Macrobius, who lived in the 3rd century, stated that among the boys under two years of age, whom Herod ordered to be slain in Syria, his own son also had been slain. And that comes from the same quote as before. The massacre of so many male uh, children created a surplus of women who were the same age as Jesus. It is quite certain that Christ and the apostles would have accepted some of them as wives, offering them an opportunity to have families, page 66. Some of the early Bibles are quoted here showing the original translations. 8, verse 8, All of thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia, when thou comest out of thy yori palaces, where they have made thee glad. Verse 9. King's daughters were among thine honorable wives. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in vesture of gold of Ophar. Verse 10. Hearken, O daughters, and consider, and incline thine ear. 
Forget also thine own people in thy father's house. Verse 11. So shall the king have pleasure in thy beauty, for he is thy Lord, and reverence thou him. Psalms 45 from the Geneva Bible, London edition, 1599 AD, King James translators were not willing that this passage above should have a literal translation according to the former English rendering, lest it should give countenance to polygamy. Therefore, they altered the translation to honorable women instead of wives. But any person acquainted with the original can see that the first translators have given the true rendering of that passage, end quote, Orson Pratt, the seer, page 160, page 67. Verse 6, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Thy scepter of thy kingdom, or the scepter of thy kingdom is a scepter of righteousness. Verse 7, Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness because God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Verse 8, All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia. When thou comest out of the Yori palaces where they have made thee glad. Verse 9, King's daughters were among thine honorable wives. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in a vesture of gold ophar. Verse 10, Hearken, O daughters, and consider, and incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people and thy father's house. Verse 11, So shall the king have pleasure in thy beauty, for he is thy Lord, and reverence thou him. Verse 12, And the daughter of Tyrus, with the rich of the people, shall do homage before thy face with, with presence. Verse 13, the king's daughters, or the king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is broidered gold. Verse 14. She shall be brought unto the king in raiment of needlework. And virgins that, uh, that follow after her and her companions shall be brought unto thee. Verse 15. With joy and gladness shall they be brought. Though the king had many daughters among his wives, yet he loved Pharaoh's daughter best. The book of Psalms from the Church of England Bible published in London in 1636 says, and we're on page 68 now, the apostle Orson Pratt continues to elaborate and substantiate these passages of scripture with reference to the Messiah who was to have a plurality of wives. Inasmuch as Messiah was to have a plurality of wives, will they not be not all be queens? Yes, but there will be an order among them. One seems to be chosen to stand at his right hand. Perhaps she may have merited that high station by her righteous acts or by the position she had previously occupied. It seems that she was one was one of the daughters of a king for the same psalm says the king's daughters is all glorious within or the the king's daughter is all glorious within her clothing 
is of wrought gold. She shall be brought unto the king in raiment of needlework. The virgins, her companions that follow her, shall be brought unto thee. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. Verses 13 through 15. It must be recollected that king's daughters were among thine honorable wives. The king here spoken of were no doubt those who thought obedience to the gospel became kings and priests forever. For we cannot suppose that Christ would marry the daughters of the kings of this world who only reign under the pretended name of kings for this short life. Such are not worthy to be called kings. Some of the daughters of those kings who are to reign on the earth forever and ever and who are in reality kings will be among his honorable wives, one being chosen to stand as queen at his right hand and worship him unto whom is made the following promise. Instead of thy fathers shall be thy children whom thou mayest make princes in all the earth. I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall the people praise thee forever. Verses 16 and 17. We are not informed at what time Jesus was to be married to this king's daughter or any of the rest of his wives. But from John the Baptist, but from what John the Baptist says, he may have been married to some of them previous to that prophet's martyrdom. The passage is as follows. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. John chapter 3, verses 29 and 30. And again Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the day will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. Matthew chapter 9, verse 15. John represents Jesus as already in the possession of the bride, while the Savior confirms that John says, by calling himself the bridegroom and the disciples, the children of the bride chamber, but who the bride was neither, but who the bride was, neither of them informs us. Whether Jesus had married any of his wives at that time or not, there will be a marriage of the Son of God at the time of his second coming. For Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king, which made a marriage for his son, and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, that they would not, and they would not come. And again he said for, he sent forth other servants saying tell them which the are bidden behold i i have prepared my dinner my ox and fatlings are killed and all things are ready 
come unto the marriage, but they made light of it and went their way, one to his farm, another to his merchandise, and the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which are bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as shall or ye shall find, bid them to bid them to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together as are all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guest, he saw there a man which had not a wedding garment, and he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to his servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. All will will admit that the king's son here spoken of is Jesus Christ, and the last servant who were servants who are sent forth have a commission to gather together from the highways and hedges both bad and good and that by the this gathering the wedding was furnished with guests the bridegroom the servants and the guests are all mentioned but the parable does not inform us who the bride is john the revelator describes the greatness the glory and the magnificence of this marriage uh, marriage celebration. He says, I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude as the voice of many waters and as the voice of mighty thundering saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelations chapter 19 verses 6 through 9. That the wife was to be a very good and holy woman is very very clearly indicated by her being clothed with the righteousness of the saints compared to fine linen. Uh, One page 71, clean and white. Her raiment raiment, raiment is more fully described in the psalm already quoted being composed of fine needlework of wrought gold. Well, many virgins were to be her attendants. That the bride will continue to be the wife of the Son of God in eternity as well as time is most clearly revealed in the 21st chapter of Revelations, where St. John beheld the new earth, and the angel said unto him, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, 
the lamb's wife, and he was carried in the spirit to a great and high mountain and saw a great city called the Holy Jerusalem descending from the heavens upon the new earth. This city contained the throne of God and the Lamb and was inhabited by great nations of kings who were to reign forever and ever, being gods, as is evident from the name of God being written on each of their foreheads. The inscription upon their foreheads was not intended as a mere sham or mockery, but was in reality the name given to each, that all the inhabitants of eternity, when they saw God consumptuously inscribed upon their foreheads, might know most assuredly that each one was a God, as the written title or express name expressly declared. The grandeur of glory of this city are still further described. The city of the streets were... Uh, therefore were of pure gold, clear as glass, while the walls and the gates were of the most precious stones, and the glory of God enlightened the city so that they had no need of the light of the sun or the moon. This light was so great that all the nations were saved that dwelt upon the face of the new earth and walked in the light thereof. There was no night there, but the whole earth was clothed in one eternal day. It was in the midst of the city that the King of kings and Lord of lords sat upon his throne, while upon his right hand did stand the queen, arrayed in the most costly apparel, in order that John might see the glory of God, the glory of his kingdom, and the glory of his bride, it was necessary to show him the palace, the place of the throne, and the city in which the bride resided. It is, a, it is expressly said concerning the queen that her name should be remembered in all generations and that the people should praise her forever and ever. Psalms chapter 45, verse 17. As John saw in vision the bride, the Lamb's wife, more than a thousand years after her marriage, after she and all the rest of the inhabitants of the earth had been raised from the dead and become immortal, it is quite certain that she was in reality a wife after the resurrection as well as before, and that she will be the Lamb's wife forever and ever, and in the capacity, in that capacity, she will be, as the psalmist has said, be respected and praised by all of the people forever and ever. That the marriage will be celebrated at the second coming of the Messiah is also clearly expressed in the parable of the ten virgins. For Jesus said, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And the five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps while the bridegroom tarried. They all slumbered and slept, and at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said unto the wise, 
give us your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there not be enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and and the door was shut. Afterwards came also other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. This parable, that like like that of the marriage of the king's son, which we have already quoted, plainly shows that there will be a gathering out from among the nations, a going forth to meet the bridegroom. But among those who gather, there will be some without a wedding garment, without oil in their lamps. But the five wise virgins who are ready to go in with the bridegroom to the marriage and the door will be shut. And here let us ask the following questions. Are these five wise virgins to be married unto the bridegroom or are they only the invited guests? And if they are guests, who constitutes the bride? In the parable of the marriage of the king's son, it is said, and the wedding was furnished with guests the guests being those who received the invitation of the servants and gathered together. If five wise virgins constitute the guests, then the bride must must be some wise holy virgin chosen to be a royal consort or queen. On the other hand, if the wise virgins represent all the saints, both male and female, and if they all constitute the bride, then where will the guests come from? Or who will they be? Again, if the five virgins are actually virgins or females who are to be married to the bridegroom, then all the rest of the saints would constitute the guests. Are not these five wise virgins the honorable wives, which the psalmist represents as the the son of God as having taken from among king's daughters? And quote Orson Pratt, the seer, pages 169 through 172, and we're on page 74. The faith, power, and gifts of the early Christian church disappeared with the original doctrines. Though per, uh, through persecution from without and from semi-apostates who aspired from within, the Church of Christ reverted to the institutions of paganism from which it had emerged. It was a desperate and futile struggle for the faithful few that contended for the gospel as revealed from with from the heavens when the sac- sacerdotal overseers themselves perpetuated heresies and de- deceptions disguised as the disguised as the word and will of God. Christian waned Christianity waned and slipped into apostasy. After being persecuted for adhering to truth, the priests turned their efforts to persecuting those 
who believed in those very same truths. Freedom sought so desperately by the Christians and which should be incorporated as part of their religion soon became one of the most deficient articles of their faith. The martyr's pyre and the bloody guillotine soon became one of the most active programs of the church, although spiritually, or I'm sorry, although spiritual disciples bore testimony to the truths of the scriptures, the church found it necessary to hide and subterfuge the truth from the lay members. The church, through the word of mortal man, became began to supplant as well as suppress the words of God. Spiritual darkness and the forces of evil from without had half collapsed the church through through the lion's den, the crosses, and the rivers of blood. Then the purity, then the balance of doctrinal purity became smothered by cunning artifice from within. The church had sacrificed its doctrinal truths for the purchase of worldly honor and esteem. The result became a half-truth, socialized Christianity, which has now become horrified with the original laws and principles which were taught and lived by the prophets, apostles, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself. There is another and more important question that should be engaged, that should engage the attention of the churches of today. The Apostle Paul declares that all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Why is it then that persecution seems to be a great degree in great degree to slumber page 75 the only reason is that the church has conformed to the world's standard and therefore awakens no opposition and it's like i i say all the time if you are a threat to the devil's kingdom he will come after you if you're not a threat to the devil's kingdom he will leave you alone And I'm not talking about people talking crap about you from time to time. We're talking about the persecution of the early saints, both in this dispensation and in the dispensation of the meridian of time, where the the people of the world come out and kill and murder and do all kinds of things to the saints because they are a threat to the devil's kingdom. The persecution, the so-called persecution that uh, the, the Christians think that they face today is laughable. Why is it that the early saints of this dispensation were murdered and raped and tortured and stolen from and their homes were burned out and all these things, but now we don't have any of that? Because things have changed. The restored gospel has changed. Doctrines in the restored gospel have changed. And I've talked about this on other radio programs for the last eight years. There are so many changes. And we have succumbed to the ways of the world and become Babylon the Great 
the 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 wife of God who goes whoring off after the world, so we're not a threat to the devil's kingdom anymore, and we don't see the kind of persecution that the early Christians and the early saints of this dispensation that we see that they went through. Continuing, the only reason is that their church has conformed to the world's standards and therefore awakens no opposition. The religion which is current in our day is not the pure and holy character that marked the Christian faith in the days of Christ and his apostles. It is only because of the spirit of compromise with sin, because the great truths of the word of God are so indifferently regarded, because there is so little vital godliness in the church that Christianity is apparently so popular with the world. Let there be a revival of faith and power and doctrines of the early church and the spirit of persecution will be revived and the fires of persecution will be rekindled. End quote, Ellen G. White, The Great Controversy, page 53. The Latter-day Saints still acknowledge the doctrine of plural marriage as an everlasting covenant. It was never meant as a temporal commandment or a practical incident in the church history. This doctrine was always, has always been declared to be an eternal principle of the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a key. Every principle proceeding from God is eternal, and any principle which is not eternal is of the devil, according to Joseph Smith and Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 181. Eternal principles are given to man for him to obtain eternal blessings. To refuse or oppose them would cause man to lose not only eternal reward, but perhaps the priesthood of God. Now briefly, the reason that the Lord through the prophet Joseph introduced the doctrine of plural marriage and the reason that the church has never and will never relinquish the doctrine of plural marriage is simply this. The major purpose of the church is to help man, help men and women attain a great and eternal destiny destiny suggested in that couplet page 76 plural marriage is the patriarchal order of marriage lived by god and others who reign in the celestial kingdom and as i've talked about before according to the vision that god gave me it is the sealing of the man to the woman and the woman to the man that gives them eternal life and that not all qualify for it, but the elect do qualify for it. And because there are many more elect females that qualify for it than men, God allows plural celestial marriage for the exaltation of his daughters. Continuing on, as well might the churches relinquish its claim to the priesthood as the doctrine of plural marriage. Brigham Young and his wives by J.J. Stewart, page 41. Throughout the centuries, men have raised mobs or laws against those who have sustained the laws of God. The saints of former days and latter days have found a common faith that brought them into jails or death. The Apostle Parley P. Pratt 
had faced them both and declared, Sir, I have yet to learn by what constitutional moral right a local state sovereignty makes a crime of that which rightly conducted never had been recognized as a crime by God or angels, prophets or apostles, or even by the Savior of the world. And quote, autobiography of Parley P. Pratt, page 420. Then his brother Orson Pratt, who had been very familiar with the laws and attitudes of the modern Christian, also portrayed a vivid picture of the fate of those who persisted in such prejudices. Jesus says, There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourself thrust out. Luke chapter 13, verse 28. There are many in this generation that are so pious that they would consider themselves greatly disgraced to be obliged to associate with a man having a plurality of wives. Would it not be well for such to desire a place separate from the kingdom of God, that they may not be contaminated with the society of these old polygamists? And and then it would be so shocking to the modesty of very pious ladies of Christendom to see Abraham and his wives, Jacob and his wives, Jesus and his honorable wives, all eating occasionally at the same table and visiting one another and conversing about their numerous children and their kingdoms. O oh, ye del- delicate ladies of Christendom, how can you endure such a scene as this? Oh, what will you do when you behold the very gates of the Holy Jerusalem, the names of the twelve sons of the four wives of the polygamist Jacob? If you do not want your morals corrupted and your delicate delicate ears shocked with your pious modesty put to the blush by the society of polygamists and their wives, do not venture near the holy Jerusalem nor come near the new earth. For polygamists will be honored there and will be among the chief rulers in that kingdom. And quote Orson Pratt in his book called The Seer, page 172. Must, men must sooner or later in this life or the next learn the eternal truths of the new and everlasting covenant. And if men have been given opportunities and privileges of gaining knowledge and testimonies of these principles in this life, but should forsake them through cowardice, compromise, or social honors while trusting in the arm of flesh, they shall barter an everlasting inheritance for a mess of pottage. Popular traditions, customs, and prejudices have always a profound effect upon the minds of men. These popular customs have almost always run counter to the laws of God, but God's laws are everlasting and unchangeable. Men, however, must learn the truths of God by testimony and then be willing to sacrifice popularity and social prestige for the eternal honors of heaven. But there are many who fail at the cause of God, for Lehi saw many souls who had partaken of the gospel fruit, but after they had tasted the fruit were ashamed because of those that were scoffing at them 
and they fell away into forbidden paths and were lost. First Nephi chapter 8, verse 28. The Latter-day Saints of today have reason to be proud rather than ashamed of the heritage bestowed by their pioneer four, uh, forefathers who sacrificed their wealth, their names, and their lives to sustain the everlasting covenant of the gospel of Jesus Christ. On page 78. They dare not repudiate or condemn the principle of plural marriage without jeopardizing their own salvation. And they should, with the velocity of... I'm actually... With the valiance... Uh, I can't say it. My tongue will not make that word work. Of Paul, the apostles, say that they are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So finally, we are done with this chapter. The next chapter is Jesus and his posterity, which is chapter 8 of Jesus is married. And... I don't know how many days it's going to take me to get through that one, but this one has taken me four days, I think. And I've just been tired, and I read some, and I try to get through some of it, but like today, I only slept four and a half hours. And after trying to sleep more, um, I just realized that there was no way I was going to be able to get back to sleep. So I might as well read. So that's why I finished it today. But um, I don't know. I I work at night. So if I can sleep during the day, I usually sleep between, usually between five to six hours. And then I try to sleep more, but it just, but I'm tired all the time. Luckily for me, there's energy drinks and they keep me going through the night. But um, I like sleeping at night more than I like sleeping in the daytime because I actually sleep a little bit longer and I have better sleep. But uh, that's not the way things go these days. So I'm a truck driver and I drive at night and this is the way it is. So uh, and I'm able to do it. But uh, I'm tired all the time, so Anyway, so I guess I'll finish that. Um, uh, By the way, if you know what the Zarahemla Foundation is uh, and you are near Lehigh, Utah, we are doing a a Hanukkah dinner and celebration this Saturday from 3.30 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. So if you're familiar with the Zarahemla Foundation uh, and you would like to attend that, uh, you could look it up and see if you can get an invite but uh i'll definitely be there my wife and i are going to be getting a hotel room in provo this weekend friday and saturday night because i have to go back to work sunday and uh we'll be up there if anybody want wants to meet me in person uh that would be fine with me so anyway uh if not um well, I don't know. Anyway, I'm going to post this on my Facebook wall along with the text and Tumblr. And uh, thank you for listening. Hopefully everything works with this uh, being over two hours. It's almost two hours and 20 minutes. So thank you everyone for listening. Take care. God bless. And goodbye.